The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. You're listening to Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. The following quotations are three of many, many, many (laughs) that are all credited to the Buddha and have to do about vegetarianism and reverence for life where there is no eater of meat there will be no destroyer of life to become vegetarian is to step into the stream which leads to nirvana the eating of meat extinguishes the seed of great kindness And today we'll hear from two Buddhist vegans and how they live this great kindness in today's world. Hi, everybody. I'm Victoria Moran, host of the Main Street Vegan Program, and so grateful that you have chosen to listen today. If you're not already part of it, I invite you to join the Main Street Vegan Podcast Listeners Group on Facebook, where we will be doing a giveaway of a copy of Mindfulness, the beautiful book written by our second guest today, Lainey Mulrath. She is a vegan Buddhist, as is our first guest, David Blatty, who also has a new book that deals with a question I don't know that anyone else ever has. And that is not just why we should be vegan or how to go vegan, but those people who know the how and why and aren't doing it, well, how come? So we're going to hear about that. Uh, Just to give you a little info on David, he is a former animal law attorney and executive director of Vegan Action, where he instituted the certified vegan logo. You've seen it. It's a heart with a V in it. And this new book with all this terrific information is The Vegan Imperative, based on over 40 years of advocacy. Welcome, David. Thank you, Victoria. It's great to be here. Well, it's wonderful, wonderful to have you. So you have been vegan over 30 years like me. There aren't many of us. I think we could make like a quintet or something. So why did you wait until now to write this amazing book? Okay, before we begin, since we're quoting Buddhism, let me add another quote that people probably aren't aware of. Okay. 
and it's from something called the Sarangama Sutra. Pure and earnest bhikshus, bhikshus mean monks, if they are earnest and sincere, will never wear clothing made of silk, nor wear boots made of leather, because it involves the taking of life. So it could be that if the Buddha were alive today, he would promote veganism, not just vegetarianism. It sure sounds like it. In the so, olden, olden days, which you were probably around for as well, Jay Dinshaw had found some of these quotes in some of the literature that the American Vegan Society published way back in the 1970s. So the information has been out there, and thank goodness now it's available for more people to find. Yes. So let me get back to your question. Um, yeah. Why now? Well, I've been thinking about these issues for 40 years, and it's specifically why people continue to eat animals. And something happened, it's probably been five to 10 years now, I was talking to one of my best friends, very compassionate, very kind. And out of the blue, we hadn't been talking about animal rights or anything. And I don't really proselytize to him or, or to anyone these days, but especially my friends. And out of the blue, he goes to me, Dave, I've been thinking about veganism for a while now. I've heard all your arguments and I have to tell you, you're right. He pauses, but I'm still going to eat meat. And that, that reinforced the question for me. And then a few years ago, you might remember the SAG Awards announced that their annual dinner was going to be vegan. So I realized the time was right. Uh, there's really been, been a shift in the last probably five to 10 years. So I figured it was a time to just put down everything I know about veganism. The book is really a primer. In the first half of the book, for people who aren't familiar with veganism, I go over the main reasons for veganism, moral, health, and environmental. I talk about speciesism. And then in the second half of the book, I try to tackle this question, why, even when people agree that they should be vegan, why do they keep eating meat? Well, that's the $64 question. And it's very interesting to me right now because just a couple of days ago, it, it happened to me. Somebody said, I know it's the right thing to do, but there's just no way I could ever do it. And I, <laughs> ah, why? Why is it so incredibly difficult? It's not like asking somebody to do an Iron Man. That's what I think would be impossible to do. It's not like asking somebody to go off and, and do wonderful work in some foreign land in difficult conditions. People do that all the time. But just eat plants? <laughs> well, in the book, I, I give all the different reasons why that I can think of. And it's different for everyone, and it's hard to make a generalization. But if I had to single out the number one issue, I think it's because that's what people have been taught. Most of the things we believe were taught growing up. For example, we believe in democracy. I think most people listening to the show would agree with democracy. But if you were born in a different society at any other time in history, would you believe in democracy? Let me give uh, two two kind of salient examples. I'm sure most of your listeners, if not all, agree that women should have equal rights. And that's pretty much standard these days. If you were born 110 years ago in 1900, society would have told you, no, women don't have equal rights. In fact, at that time, they couldn't even vote. And people raised in that culture, they believed, no, women shouldn't have equal rights. 
if we go back even further, 250 years, at that time, people had slaves. Nowadays, of course, no one thinks we should have slaves. Back then, if you lived in the South, you were raised to believe, okay, slavery is okay. And people accepted that. So people have a tendency to accept what they're taught. And one of the points I make in my book is that even though society teaches you something is right, society may get it wrong. We got it wrong with slavery 250 years ago. We got it wrong with women's rights 110 years ago. And I believe right now when it comes to animals, society is getting it wrong. Animals are sentient beings. They live emotional lives. They want to live. And the notion that we can kill them for food, we're taught is okay and is right. But part of my thesis is even though we're taught that, it's not really right. It's up for each person to evaluate it on his or her own and reach your own conclusion. Is it consistent with other values? Is eating animals, for example, consistent with compassion? And, and I believe that the answer is no, it's not consistent with compassion. David, do you have a sense of the difference in character, personality of one person grew up in the same culture, sees a video of a slaughterhouse or a factory farming situation, and that's it. They're vegan the next day. And somebody else, same background, sees the same video. Maybe they see 20 videos. Maybe they talk to you or they talk to me and they're still eating meat. What's, what's in there that makes the difference? Yeah, that's a really tough question. Um, one, one thing I address, I don't go into it too much, is that people are born with different natures. Um, some people, the, the ability to feel compassion, and there's actually studies on empathy, can be genetic. And some people have different predispositions. But more than that, I think it's how we respond to our environment. Two people raised in the same environment with the same parents, because of their personalities, they'll react very differently. And this is, this is much too difficult to understand. I don't, I don't know if we even can. Um, it's just a whole bunch of, of different factors that go into it. Ultimately, I have to say, um, even though I've thought about it for 30 years, I've, I've written this book, I, I still don't fully understand it. Even now, when I talk to people about the book, you know, friends, compassionate people, vegetarians who don't want to go vegan, you know, I, I try to understand it. And, and at some point, I'm not sure we really can. Um, all we can do is look at the different factors. Yes. And if we could just get a sense so that we could plant a little bit of that person A into person B. Or I guess right now, what we need to do is get all of the person A's. If we get everybody who can do this or, or believes they can do it on board, then we can go after the, the tougher ones. So why do you think, what are just the main reasons that people give for, for not going vegan? Maybe there's some way we could make some of those easier, make them go away. Yeah, well, let me tell you some of the factors I've come up with. One, one is, to me, the most interesting. I had heard the term. I wasn't that familiar with it. It's cognitive dissonance. That's a phrase that was um, coined, I think, in 1957. And it means it occurs when your actions are inconsistent with your beliefs. Mm -hmm. um, 
And these psychologists coined the term the meat paradox for people when they eat meat. And what you have, most people um, don't want to hurt animals. There are studies on this. And if you ask people, they'll say, no, we don't want to hurt animals. On the other hand, most people enjoy eating meat. This creates attention in people. And when you have attention called cognitive dissonance, there are different ways you can relieve that tension. One way, which is what vegans do, is you stop engaging in the activity. You just give up the meat. But most people, when they don't give up the meat, they have to find ways to release the tension. And in one of the chapters in the book, I go into a number of these ways that we, we release or relieve the tension. For example, one thing we do is we dissociate. When we see a hamburger or a steak on our plate, we don't think of it as an animal. Now, I do. Every time I see someone eating a chicken or a steak, I see them eating an animal. Uh, perhaps you do too. Most people, they don't. They see it's a piece of meat. And it's reinforced by the very word meat. It's reinforced by veal or by pork, words like that. Also, the whole process is hidden. We don't have slaughterhouses in our neighborhoods. They're far away, so we don't actually see the process. When the meat arrives on the plate, a lot of the, the, um, the elements that would remind us that it was an animal are removed, such as the eye and the tail. So there's all these different ways that people kind of live with the cognitive dissonance. They find ways to, to say, yes, it's okay. An important one goes back to what I started with is the normalization of eating meat. Even if you have qualms, you look around and you see, oh, everyone's eating meat. It can't be bad. And that's another way we can relieve the tension of the cognitive dissonance. Um, there's one thing you hear uh, many times is that, well, I don't make a difference. And this is also what I call the cognitive, cognitive dissonance reduction strategy, where people deny personal responsibility. There's so much going on, one person make, doesn't make a difference. But of course, everyone makes a difference. It's all cumulative. If each one of us stopped buying meat, there'd be no meat industry and we'd all be vegan. Um, a lot of people say, well, everything in moderation. That's another way people kind of justify. They'll say, well, in fact, I tell the story of my uncle growing up. We were very close and he was 99% vegan. Every once in a while, he just had to have a pastrami sandwich. And we would argue and he goes, oh, everything in moderation. And the problem with that is when, you, when you're doing harm, moderation doesn't really apply. And I give the analogy. It's kind of a tough analogy, but I do give it. There, there are people who, who will beat their spouse. We know this happens. And if that person were to go, to go to you, well, I'm only doing it once a month, once a year, you would say, no, moderation doesn't work here. You can never do that. Um, what I try to argue in the book is that no, moderation in eating animals, you can never do. Because every time you eat animals, every time you eat milk, you're harming an animal. And you can't really harm an animal in moderation. Um, there's also, should I go on? You can, um, I'm loving it. Okay. 
Um, another thing people say very commonly is meat is natural. Eating meat is natural. That means a whole bunch of things. Um, but it's not, it's not natural in several ways. We're not, we're not um, carnivorous. We don't have carnivorous teeth, for example. Um, we can't chew meat without a knife. We have long intestines. Our bodies can eat meat, but they're not necessarily built to eat meat. Some people say, well, animals eat animals, therefore eating animals is natural. But we don't base our morality on animals. Animals do a lot of things that humans wouldn't do. Um, so, and then I think the biggest, the biggest, what I call again, cognitive uh, dissonance reduction strategy is simply avoidance. It's surprising to me um, how, how little people are willing to be engaged. And, you know, getting back to, to Buddhism, I tried, I was, I was practicing in a sangha, local, a local center. Um, and I tried to introduce the idea of having all our functions vegetarian. And Buddhism, as you know, is very much about confronting what's happening and not turning away. But when I raised it, no one would even engage with me about vegetarianism. I think the reason is people know, or they have a sense that if, once they go down that road, they might decide, oh, I do need to be vegetarian or vegan, and they don't want to. So I think avoidance is also a factor that goes on. So those are, those are some of the factors, psychological factors, I think, are going on with people. Those are so fascinating. And the book, everybody, in case you didn't get that before, is The Vegan Imperative, Why We Must Give Up Meat and Why We Don't. The website is veganimperativebook.com, Facebook page, Vegan Imperative Book, and we will put all of that information and more about this wonderful guest and our other wonderful guest uh, in the show notes at, at MainStreetVegan.net. So you mentioned the term speciesism, and what's your take on that? How do you define it? Well, I put it in the context of otherness and in, of oppression. Um, when we talk about oppression, what happens is you have the dominant group and they take another group and they create, based on some arbitrary extinct, extinction, this notion of other. And it goes back to two of the examples I talked about. When there was slavery, and it doesn't have to just be in the United States, we can go back, I think, five or 6,000 years to ancient Egypt when my ancestors were slaves. Slavery is a part of part of human culture, part of human history. And in every case, what you do is you take this other group and you arbitrarily say they're different. For example, they might have a different religion. They might have a different skin color. They might have a different nationality. And you say, well, because they're different, I can treat them differently. I can deny them rights. We did this um, with women. We say men, men who were dominant um, in society said, well, women are different, they're other, and I'm going to treat them differently because they're other. The problem is um, the reason that they are different or other is arbitrary. It makes no different when, difference when it comes to morality. The principle that I rely on in my book um, to justify uh, veganism is the notion of compassion. 
And we have compassion because the other being suffers. That's the whole basis of compassion. If there was no suffering, there would be no need for compassion. So the reason we don't enslave people is because they suffer. The reason we don't subjugate women is because they suffer. And the reason vegans don't kill animals is because they suffer and they want to live. So speciesism is similar to other forms of ism in that you take another group, you make an arbitrary distinction, and you put the rights of your group over the rights of the other group. That is so well explained. That just I think that's so clear that um, a child could understand it, although I think children already understand it. <laughs> uh, we learn as we get older to kind of um, phase it out. So I, I do want to ask you a little bit about your veganism as a Buddhist. I know that you're a co-founder of Dharma Voices for Animals, beautiful, beautiful organization for anybody who is interested in, in Buddhism and in, in animals. And you're also the director of, of a just perfect film, Animals and the Buddha. We showed it uh, recently for our uh, book and film night at the Compassion Consortium. And so just talk to me as a Buddhist, what, what is there in those teachings that support being a vegan? Okay, well, I'll tell you my, my introduction into it. I was always interested in Eastern philosophy. And in 1998, I decided to get serious about meditation. I ended up taking a Vipassana beginning meditation course. Vipassana is a type of meditation, very popular. I took a six-week six course. I immediately started meditating every day. And shortly into, into learning about uh, the Dharma, as it's called, I came upon what are called the five precepts. And the precepts are similar to the Ten Commandments. And the first precept is cause no harm or do not kill. And it's understood that this includes animals. So when I saw that, I was elated. Here was a philosophy that totally aligned with my own. It aligned not only in other ways, and it resonated not only in other ways, but also there. So I naturally assumed all Buddhists were vegetarian. Um, there's, there's some other reasons to think that there's something called right livelihood. And the Buddhists said you should not engage in livelihoods that trade in animals. So he's pretty much against, you know, being a butcher. Um, so I just assumed everyone was vegetarian. And then about two years in, I went on a 10 day retreat. And at the end of the retreat, I went to say goodbye to my teacher. I caught him at lunchtime and there on his plate was a fish staring up. Um, and I was shocked. You know, I had no idea that, that Buddhists, eight animals. And I've subsequently learned that probably more than half of practicing Buddhists um, are not vegetarian. And that's, that's the reason we started the, the organization. From a scriptural point of view, um, I won't go into this too much. There's two main lineages. There's Mahayana and Theravada. And I, the quotes that you read and that I read are all from Mahayana, such as Zen and Tibetan. And they're vegetarian, there's no doubt about it. The other lineage is Theravada, which is my lineage. And there, there's, some, there's this principle called the three purities that says, basically, if the animal is not 
um, seen, heard, or suspected that it was killed for you, it's okay to eat it. And people have used that to justify eating meat um, for a lot of reasons. It, it doesn't make sense to me for a lot of reasons. Um, but when it comes down to it, for me, the essence of Buddhism is compassion. And it's really hard for me to see how, you know, participating in the eating of animals at any stage, whether you're killing the animal or whether you're eating the animal, is consistent with compassion. Um, so that's really where I come out on it. That makes so much sense. And I, it, it's very difficult, I think, for people on the outside to read what we read and then uh, come to see that not all Buddhists are vegetarian. But um, one of these days. <laughs> it's, you know, what, what's interesting, too, the Dalai Lama, under his teachings, the Buddha said, be vegetarian. And the Dalai Lama himself is not a vegetarian. Yes. So, you know, it might it, it really it shows you the challenges yeah. that we that we face. My understanding is that in his case, it's because his doctor tells him that he has to eat meat. I think it's every third day or something like <laughs> that. And I think of all these wonderful plant-based physicians that we have. It's just like if only one of them could be the Dalai Lama's doctor. That's true. That goes back to believing what you've been told. Uh, you can find any number of any number of doctors to tell you, no, you're better off eating plant-based. And so finally, I can't believe we're down to our last like minute and a half. When what do you say when people tell you they just like meat too much to give it up? Well, all I can really do is go back to the harm that it causes um, and just make that connection. I understand you like this, but when you eat it, when you eat meat, when you eat dairy, you're causing harm. And just keep that in mind. And really, it's up to them to, to determine how important the harm is versus their own enjoyment of the meat. And some people just say, well, you know, I just enjoy it too much. Uh, and I, I think that right there, I think, is kind of the essence of it and why people uh, I guess, like you and me, uh, don't really understand the calculation. When I hear that, oh, that's an easy choice. I don't want to cause harm. It, it's hard, really hard to understand why people do choose to, to cause harm, um, but they do, and, and that's the work that we have. Exactly. And as more and more people read the vegan imperative, uh, I think fewer and fewer are going to be eating the meat. We're on a roll here. Something has started uh, in, in our society and in our world that's um, it's upward. And people like you are so instrumental in that. Thank you so much, David Blatty, The Vegan Imperative. Everybody else, stay with us. We're going to learn how to be mindful. Okay. Thank you, Victoria. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. 
experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for being here today. And we do have our show notes so that you can find out more and ways to connect with both of our guests today. Those are at MainStreetVegan.net, where you'll find lots of other interesting information, like a fascinating blog. And I can say it's fascinating because I only write once a month, but it comes out every week. Um, Actually, today's I did write. Uh, It's called Long-Term Weight Loss, because if that's of any interest to you, that's something that I was blessed with when I went vegan um, 37 years ago. I'd always struggled with that and haven't struggled in a good long time. So you might want to check out that blog post this week and also take a look at Main Street Vegan Academy. Maybe you want to up your game and become a professional vegan. So we have been certifying vegan lifestyle coaches and educators since 2012. We are in the midst right now of our 32nd class and we'll have class number 33 in January via Zoom. So do check us out. We'd love to uh, love to have you. So there's somebody that I am just thrilled to pieces to be about to talk with and that is Lanny Muehlrath. She's been on before. She is a wonderful vegan, a wonderful Buddhist and a wonderful human being an author and a teacher, a TV host, vegetarian for 43 years, and author of four books. You're trying to catch up with me, Lanny. She's also a world traveler and has just come back from three weeks in Kenya, where she and her husband volunteer as advocates for the orphaned elephants who are victims of poaching and human-wildlife conflicts. When she's not traveling the world saving animals she lives in the sonoma mountains in northern california where she has a wildlife sanctuary welcome lanny muehlrath victoria thank you and i'm just so excited to be with you again it's been too long my friend since we've been able to meet up in real time and oh geez that's that's the truth. You know, even though things uh, have opened up certainly in my life a little bit in the past few months, it's mm-hmm. it's still not anything like it was. And I forgot to say in your introduction that you have this fabulous book, which is Mindfulness, <laughs> Unwind, De-Stress, and Focus Your Mind for a Healthier, Happier You. And we just happen to have an extra copy of this gorgeous and wonderful book. And we're going to be giving that away oh, that's great. in good. the Facebook group. So join um, Main Street Vegan Podcast listeners on Facebook, and you'll have an opportunity uh, to win this book. Really, really a beautiful, beautiful work. 
by Lanny Mulrath and Damio Sutter Burke. So, first, let's talk about Africa because you just got back. Tell us what you were doing over there. Well, uh, as you mentioned, what we several years ago, I think it's about seven years ago, we started going to Africa to Kenya annually to support the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, which many people are familiar with. They have done the biggest work I know of in Kenya with helping to get the orphans, elephants that parents have, mothers have been killed for their ivory, or there's human wildlife conflict where human human growth as all over the planet is encroaching on wild lands. So it's moving into the space where elephants should be able to eat and roam, but they plant their gardens there. So guess who pays the price for that? So <laughs> there's all kinds of reasons for elephants to be orphaned. So we started adopting or fostering many years ago and just keep adding to the the group. So we go there and we stay at their, they're called reintegration units and their nurseries are like six of them now. So the first nurseries are where the young ones come if they're three or younger. And as they get older, they move to these other locations in Kenya where they are reintegrated eventually into the wild. And the exciting thing is now this has been so successful that now we have reintegrated orphans who have moved out to the wild, have babies with wild elephants and come bring their babies back to the nursery to meet the keeper. So there's this long-term relationship between humans and elephants. That's so just beautiful to behold. Wow. Just tell me, Lanny, what's an elephant like? They are very sensitive and intelligent and connected with their family units. So for example, if you see an elephant in with its baby, and it's, if there's any perceived uh, danger or strangeness around all the other elephants in the family group, all the other um, females and the younger males will instantly gather around and face outward being protective of the infant. So that's an example of how tuned they are into caring. They can communicate with each other across miles in rumbling sounds that are of a frequency that we cannot hear. So they are able to communicate and move each other around and help each other out in distress. And they're adorable and they're huggable and they don't care how baggy their butts are. And I just, you know, everything about them is just uh, astonishing. But they are wild. So we can be around the young ones. We can be around the ones that are older as long as we're with the keeper who has very connected who they know well because they establish relationship with their keepers. That's oh, a snapshot. <laughs> what an experience. And thank you so much for doing that. And tell us a little bit about what you have going on there in your home and the wildlife around you. Well, as we re we just moved here a couple of years ago, we uh, had to relocate because our home in Paradise, which is where the campfire was, and everyone knows about the campfire, right? <laughs> Well, tell, that's tell us. That, I, I don't yeah, know that that's everyone the one, on Earth knows. Well, you know, all over the world, they seem to hear about it. But it's the, the largest destruction of a community. There were like, um, 
you know, 14,000 homes burned. It's just gone. Our home survived, but the community did not. So after much ado, because we've been there 40 something years, built our home there, we relocated because the community is just gone and it's been denuded. All the trees are down. Um, so we relocated to Sonoma here. And because we're so used to living in the middle of the wild and in the woods, we searched until we found a place that was smack up against this 5,000 acre uh, park, if you can believe it or not, so that we could be in the wild again. And what we've done is created a habitat so that we are able to support the wildlife. And that means um, having food and water out for them. It means trying to remove non-native species of plants and plants so that we can foster the native ones that are more friendly to our drought <laughs> that we seem to have here in California, provide protection for the animals. So, and do everything we can to make it a safe haven for whatever wildlife ventures into our property. Oh, that's just beautiful. Now for somebody who's not in California, how how is everybody living with the threat <laughs> of these fires? Well, it's we're pretty much on high alert, but I'll tell you one thing that has come of this that's been really beautiful to behold, Victoria, is the community that has come forward in this place where we live now, which did experience wildfire a few years ago. It came right through this area. But what's happened is everyone has banded together with communications and also with uh, doing providing a stewardship for the land, taking out dead and um, debris, you know, raking the forests kind of, if you will, making sure our grasses are down, making sure that there is space created and a support system. So it's much safer than it used to be in terms of physically, but also emotionally with community support. Well, thank you for that update, because I, I just every time they say there's another one, my heart just breaks for you guys. So thank you for all you do on so many levels. And thank you for writing this beautiful book. This book has a cover that is largely pink. That's yeah, so gutsy. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's just uplifting. I look at it and it makes me happy. I have new dishes and, and they're they're blue and pink and they have flowers oh. and my dishes used to be kind of earthy brown and you know the earth <laughs> is good but I am happy that I have pink and blue dishes and I feel the same way about your book cover so tell us a little bit of the inspiration for mindfulness yeah oh I love your story about the dishes because when we got married in 19 mumble mumble you know 70 something and we got these tonala plates which are Mexican gray and to this day, we think, why in earth did we think a gray plate would be something you'd want to eat off of? So our plates are blue and white now, too. <laughs> so I get that. Well, I'll tell you what, this book cover, I cannot take credit for it, but because the publisher did that. But the minute I saw it, I thought, oh, it looks like Yosemite, you know, that place in very important place in California, Yosemite Valley, which is a large national park. It looks like El Capitan and you can almost see Half Dome back there. But everyone seems to love this cover because it just seems warm and inviting. I've gotten a lot of comments about that. But anyway, how the book came about is the publisher, which is we share a publisher as Penguin Random House. So we both um, done projects with that publisher before. And they were looking for someone to update their kind of house um, mindfulness and meditation book. So originally it was part of the um, Idiot's Guide series. They had an Idiot's Guide to Mindfulness and 
you know, all the different things like this. But that's kind of passe now. And they said, let's update this. Let's make it part of get this, the Conscious Care Guide series. And I love that. Conscious care and conscious living are really what we're trying to do, right? Right. So um, I was thrilled that they approached me. And when I wrote The Mindful Vegan, I thought I had read everything in mindfulness, all the books, but I had not seen the one that Domio Sacher Burke had written that then they asked me to, you know, update and modernize and bring in more information. So that's how it came about. But I, I said, well, let me read it first before I agree to update it, because I wanted to make sure there was a philosophical blend between what was already put together, right? Right. Because it was going to have my name on it. So this is why I was really excited because, and this will tie in with your conversation with David, even though I only got to hear the very end of it. Um, What I wanted to see happen with this book is a deeper connection between the principles of mindfulness and its origins, which it has its origin in Buddhism, and the way living mindfully needs to connect with, well, mindfulness practice needs to connect with living mindfully, which means how we eat and what we eat and how we live on the planet. And this gave me a perfect opportunity to dive in deeper to that. And I must say that central to that was choices we make in eating. If we have mindful ethics, which comes along with a tradition of refrain from causing unnecessary harm, that is a principle from from Buddhist history, Um, refraining from taking that which is not freely given. I mean, those are the first two. Is there some kind of connector between what we eat and and how we live and living mindfully? So uh, I I really embellished that aspect of it. And I point out to the reader also that the origins of mindfulness from their Buddhist origins, also the early monks needed to practice ethical living before they even learned mindfulness meditation practices. So that means you need to practice uh, how you how you cause unnecessary harm, how you may not be taking that which is not freely giving. Are you refraining from dishonesty and lying? Are you living consciously in all these ways? And then, because those are important you can't live unethically and then sit down and expect to have inner peace, right? <laughs> it's an outgrowth of how you live. So I drew that out throughout the whole book. So that was my happiest moment about connecting with this material. Oh, that's lovely. I always love to hear how books come about. It's <laughs> almost like, and how did you meet your own true love? <laughs> how did your book come about? Oh, yeah. So for, for people who, who don't know what it is, mindful. I think sometimes people misinterpret that and it's almost like my mind is so full already. <laughs> yeah. So what does it really mean in this context? That's very good. And and it, it also connects Victoria to another reason I wanted to, um, what I'm happy about this book, this change or this diving deeper into the ethical component is, um, mindfulness means even though it sounds like you're full of your mind all it means is that you're being attentive and aware of what you were doing in thought and word and deed 
instead of going about our lives mindlessly, which many of us do all the time, even if we have a mindfulness practice, there's so much we do with automaticity, with um, reaction, reactivity. And so what, what mindfulness is, is, it's a specific form of mental training and it's a particular kind of attention you do to bring to your daily activities. So together, these lead to reductions in reactivity. So how much of our life is just a reaction, right? And also to cultivation of positive brain states, such as compassion, kindness, empathy, patience, generosity, love, all of those things that we really would like to grow in our lives. So that's what mindfulness means to me. So something I think that confuses people, I say it confuses people, it confuses me and I'm a person. So (laughs) the difference between mindfulness in living our daily lives, I mean, where I first heard of it was years ago, Thich Nhat Hanh. And there was something in, I I think his first book, The Miracle of Mindfulness, where he said that you want to um, wash the teapot with the same care with which you would give the baby Buddha or Jesus a bath. And I've always remembered that, and that has stuck. But then we hear about mindfulness meditation. So what's that? Yeah, and I do go into that in both The Mindful Vegan and in this book. I go through a step-by-step. What that means is you're, back to my definition, Mindfulness is a specific form of mental training. So if you're going to do mindfulness meditation or participate in that, it means that you are training yourself in a specific way to have some degree of mastery over our habits of thinking. If indeed we are led around by reactivity and previous notions about how people are, how situations are, um, how things are in our daily life, We're living through reactivity and with mindfulness meditation by being focused on what's being present right now, which you can, everyone can do right now. If you're sitting or standing, feel your backside on the chair or your feet on the floor. If you're standing, if you connect to what your body is right in this space and sense where your breath is, you're bringing yourself right to the present moment. So with mindfulness meditation practice, what we do is take some specific time to bring our attention back to the present moment over and over again, because we know our minds are going to wander and that's okay. That's the human predicament. It's a normal part of our life, but can we train ourselves so that we aren't living in a wandering mind state all the time, which leads us into negative brain states. You know how it is when we get caught up in catastrophizing or worrying about the past or the future or regrets, and pretty soon we're feeling pretty bad. It's because we've lost connection with being right here, right now, and our brain actually moves into those parts of or our our thought processes moves into those parts of our brain where exist um, anxiety, calamity, addiction, all of those things are kind of parcel with being caught up in wandering mind. So you aspire to take some time to what's it like not to just run with every thought that comes down the road. And that translates to being a positive tool for your life because you start to see how you are automatically reacting to people in situations because you're training 
has allowed you to be still just long enough to see you can kind of get a foot in the door and see, oh, I see how I'm reacting. I see that there's anger coming up. Not that anger's bad, but how can I navigate that more skillfully? How can I use that in a way that's creating more happiness and kindness? Really, the whole point of this mindfulness is to create more happiness for ourselves and for all. What a beautiful goal. And I just said the word goal. And you have a section in your book that's called The Trouble with Goals. <laughs> so tell us about that. And and I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to say something that will make me feel better because I've never been a big goal setter. I always felt that the universe seems to know about the outcome. I just need to be doing the action. But, but yes. tell us about your section. Yes. Well, and I bet you can say this about your life, too. And I was talking with my husband, Greg, about this. Uh, we were on our walk, morning walk back from the park. And and I said, you know, if we had looked forward to our life when we first got married, low those many years ago, we could never have imagined that this would have come of it. This, you know, we've just gotten back from another trip to Africa and all the wonderful things we've been able to be involved in. So if you had set your mind on a goal that ne had necessarily nothing to do with where you arrived, we can kind of limit ourselves in a certain way. But I, I'm with you. I think that if we can instead aspire to a certain state of being or bring a certain presence to our life that opens us up to possibility, then all kinds of things can unfold to us that may not have at all been on our goal list. Because these goal lists, they can be limiting. Certainly, if I say, you know, I'd really like to go to Africa next year, and I'll have to set a goal to make sure I have the funds and get my passport and all the shots I'll need. But that's different than the bigger goals in your life. Let's open to possibility. You know, and this is why I think the, the fundamentals of ethical living and a mindfulness practice can put you in the best place for this kind of possibility because you're you're kind of taking off the barriers and opening up certain limitations. And when you are, you know, we all have a certain degree of bootability, which is, uh -huh. you know, and we that, you, that term just makes sense, doesn't it? We all have compassion and, and hope and happiness and love and and all of these wonderful things that we want to grow. And when we get so narrowed and focused on some kind of a goal, we can kind of forget that. So why not make it so that you try to aspire to inhabit a space that opens up to possibility? I love that. So why don't you help us a little bit? We've got about three minutes. Can you just take us on a little mindfulness practice? Yeah, let me, and I set it up like this with four steps, and it's it's in the mindfulness book, and it's in the Mindful Vegan also, because it does sound kind of um, esoteric, but it's, as I said earlier in our conversation, wherever you're sitting or standing, just do this. Feel your body in space. Can you feel your feet on the floor? So take your attention to the bottoms of your feet. Now, I understand some people I cannot make that connection. So if you are trying to find the bottoms of your feet without touching them, then you are not alone. 
And that just means that there's some area of being mindful in your body that you're going to be able to reach into. So if you need to like kind of tap your feet on the ground to see where they are and then just let them sit there, feel that, feel your body in space. So to give you four simple steps, so a takeaway for everyone to get yourself like one minute of mindfulness practice today to try it out. I use this acronym called PAIR and position stand, P stands for position in the word PAIR. So that means sitting or standing wherever you are, let yourself be upright and attentive and open. Then A stands for anchor, find something to anchor your attention so you can start to train away from this wandering mind. So. For many of us, it's the breath, and that's very powerful because the breath can only take place in the present moment. You can't breathe for yesterday or tomorrow. So if any place that you're at, at breath is to your attention, and if you can't find that, then the back to the bottom of your feet or the your your palms of your hands. That's an anchor for you to bring your attention back. Then you set an intention, okay, I'm going to practice this mental training for one minute, for two minutes, for five minutes. That way you're not just leaving it open to when I'm not in the mood anymore because you're going to get not in the mood very quickly because we're used to traveling wherever our minds take us. And then R on pair stands for remindfulness, which means every time you notice that your mind has wandered away from being present with your anchor and your position, you just bring it back. And that's all mindfulness training is, Victoria. You just do that over and over again. That is perfect. My goodness. I think people take meditation courses that are six weeks long. And <laughs> you've pretty much given us everything. Position, anchor, intention, re-mindfulness. Yeah. How beautiful. Oh. And finally, just in our last few seconds, the book is Mindfulness unwind, de-stress, and focus your mind for a healthier, happier you. So uh, give us a, a vegan thought for the day to go out with. Um, well, I'll tell you what, one thing that comes to mind, um, one of my teachers, Jill Satterfield, has uh, said something that always sticks with me when I'm aspiring to bring in living better and being more mindful. And she says, you know, my family hates it when I'm a, I'm a Buddhist, but they love it when I'm a Buddha. Ha ha. And I, perfect. <laughs> and I isn't love that perfect? That. Yeah, That's because and, and that what that means is all those qualities of Buddhability that when we cultivate them, elevate our life <laughs> and their demonstration of being mindful in our life. Love it. That's just, that's perfect. Thank you so much, Lanny. Thank Thanks you. to Unity Online Radio for always being there for us and our wonderful engineer, Jeff Comfort. And thanks to all of you for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world.
I'm Michelle Phillips, a celebrity makeup artist, beauty expert, self-confidence coach, and Hay House author. My podcast, Beauty and Beyond, is the place for women navigating the challenges of the aging process. Listen in for my professional advice, as well as my expert guests, as we share valuable tips, practical tools, and empowering resources to help you not only look amazing, but also live an amazing life. Part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network and available wherever you get your podcasts.